Many years have passed since a fellowship of light battled the shadow creature at the Grey Haven. Now the heroes find themselves in an unknown land where they discover a man in black is wreaking havoc. Undeath follows him wherever he goes, and long-forgotten legends rise again, having been possessed by his evil. Join the players of this Dungeons & Dragons campaign as they attempt to stop the man in black as he collects artifacts both on and off the Lonely Isle. Welcome to Tolerasia in part two of the Inglorian Bastards trilogy, Rise of the Mormon. Um, so I, I, I hate when interviewers sometimes go back to something that you talked about like 20 minutes ago, but I, I have to make this comparison because you, you mentioned, um, and I forget where I've heard this probably on one of the hundreds of documentaries about Tolkien, but you mentioned compartmentalizing and, and yeah. how, you know, you were an academic, but you had, you know, all these things that you sort of love to do in your free time, right? right. Um, yeah. Which not to say they weren't academic, but you were trying to fit them in. So I, I have to make a comparison to Tolkien um, about how, you know, he was a linguist, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, mm -hmm. and in, his, in his free time, he was making up made-up languages, right? Right. Um, right. So have you ever thought about that? Like uh, how, how he was sort of, in a, and he, he was a professor at Oxford, correct? Yes, yes. Have you yeah. ever thought about that comparison at all? Well, in some ways. I mean, one of the things that's, that has become clearer and clearer to me with Tolkien, uh, you know, as I've been studying more over the last few years and learning more and more through my podcast, um, it's clearer and clearer to me that Tolkien, some people talk about Tolkien's career, like his academic career. Um, and, you know, there were people, even in his own time, who were saying that he was kind of a disappointment, right? Disappointment because of his comparatively low scholarly output, right? right? I mean, he didn't publish all that much. And, and everyone knew that he was brilliant, right? I mean, he was like the great philologist and very, very great. Like, so people had been waiting. People waited his entire career, like, when is Professor Tolkien going to, you know, publish, like, the next big definitive you know, treatise or textbook on philology that they were waiting for, you know, and it didn't come and it didn't come and it never came. And then of course, in the end, what comes is the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> right? You know, and Tolkien, Thankfully. you know, by that time is almost at retirement age and the Lord of the Rings comes out and then everyone's like, uh, oh, okay. So we see what you were doing instead of working, right? When you should have been, uh, you know, working in your philology, you were doing this instead. And that's always been kind of the, you know, the, the perception, certainly from the academic side, you know, that instead of doing his philology work, instead of doing his linguistic stuff, he was, you know, writing these fantasy stories instead, as if like he was doing that in the closet as a kind of, you know, uh, shameful <laughs> hobby, which happened to make it big, you know. Um, but as you say, you can already see in his invented languages, right, that the two things are not, are not like, unconnected at all, no. right? They're the opposite of unconnected. Um, and this is the thing that has become clearer and clearer to me as I've been studying Tolkien, is the extent to which his creative work was not a distraction from his scholarship. His creative work was a manifestation of his scholarship. Like, they missed it. Like, what nobody saw, like, what his colleagues at Oxford didn't see is that, in a very real sense, The Lord of the Rings was the big treatise and in textbook that he never published, right? It's not, it's, it wasn't just a distraction from it, right? It was the form in which his own scholarship took its clearest expression. Tolkien, he did not like, and frankly, was not very good at writing critical stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. some, I mean, some, like, you know, the Monsters and the Critics, you know, his famous Beowulf essay is an excellent essay, though kind of wandering, 
right? On fairy stories is incredible, though even more wandering. I mean, that, that essay is really fine. As a, considered only as a piece of, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a sample of scholarly writing, it's not a good model, right? I mean, like Tolkien fans, don't model your scholar, your, your, don't try to write papers like Tolkien wrote on fairy stories. It's not a good model. Right. Again, that's just not, it's not where his heart was. It's not what he was good at, right? What he is good at. Uh, is this, you know, so writing about Beowulf was hard for him, right? But writing about the Rohirrim, not hard, right? right? And that's, and, and you can see it like more and more. Tom Shippey, of course, is wonderful about these things. Um, that is like the, the, you know, pointing out the, 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 the places in the Lord of the Rings where Tolkien is actually making a critical argument, right? Implicitly in his, you know, so like he, he clearly had a theory about what this one line in Beowulf, this one contested line in Beowulf meant, right? And there were all these scholarly debates about what, you know, the person who said this thing in Beowulf meant when he said that thing, right? Well, Tolkien had a theory about that, so what does he do? He doesn't write an article on it, right, debating with all those other people who are debating about this. He writes a mythology. (laughs) He puts that line in Nahama's mouth, right? Nahama confronts uh, Gandalf and Aragorn at the door and shows clearly what he thinks that guy meant when he said that thing, right? Like what it translates to and what he meant by it. Right. Um, and so again, it's not about competition with his scholarship. Like it is his scholarship, and of course, the invented languages are some of the purest instances of that. Because of course, this is another thing that you see, especially back in those earlier volumes of the history of Middle Earth. Right. <laughs> People talk about Tolkien's invented languages and usually will refer to that and, you know, understand that it was really impressive what he did, right? The, 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 the depth of the, the language, you know, the complexity of the languages that he created. But that's only like the surface. I mean, those are like stills compared to a film, right? Uh, because what he was really doing when he was inventing his languages, and one of the reasons that there are so many different variants and changes and things, is that he wasn't just saying, I'm going to invent a language. Oh, hey, I'm going to invent another language. Instead, he was taking all of the things from his philological work, right, about how languages change over time, right, the kind of external, uh, you know, sociological and geographical factors that lead languages to change or to split, and then what, how, what kinds of factors will affect the two different languages that came off the same route to to go in different ways. And then what happens, ooh, what happens when a branch of one of those two then comes back into contact with the other one? The sundering of the elves, yeah. Exactly, the sundering of the elves is exactly it, right? So all of these, so he's not just inventing a language, right? He invents the languages and their entire tree, right? The entire process of how those languages change and develop and become, you know, eight or nine different languages the ways in which they interact and how you can see the borrowings from this one language back into the other language. And I mean, it's this whole big, enormous moving tapestry of language through all of this stuff, which is, as you say, this is the Silmarillion, right? This is what, this is the heart of what the Silmarillion stories are. And as soon as you see him talking about the languages themselves, you can hear all of the Silmarillion stories come from that. Yeah. Why do we have the green elves, right? Why do the green elves exist? We've got this, you know, the, the, this, people complain about Silmarillion readers, especially like my old undergrads, used to complain all the time about how ridiculously overcomplicated the, like, elf, the divisions of the elves are, right? Like, oh, how you've got, like, it's not enough to have, like, the Vanyar and the Noldor and the Toeri, right? Yeah. You've got to have the Toeri divided into, like, five different subgroups, which then change their name four times and all this stuff. But there's explanations for each one of them. And there is- 
and, and, you know, it, it's the first reading that it becomes problematic, right? It's yeah. not, it's not yeah. until, it's, it's not until you know these people, right? Yeah. And you know where they came from and you know where they're going and you know where their brother is and right. Like yes. that you really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, all those things are, 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 are Tolkien playing with, you can see all those things create a different linguistic situation. Well, right? I think, I think, uh, you know, probably another thing having <laughs> common is, is the, is the desire to create. Right. Yes. And so, and so I'm sure he was really good at a lot of things, but he had that part in him that just, wanted Absolutely. To, you know, and, and that's what, that's what he loved most. And it really is what he was best at. I mean, he was, there are mixed reports about his teaching. I mean, there are several people who, like, for whom he was like the most influential teacher of their entire lives. W. H. Auden, the you know the famous poet, of course, was very outspoken about this. He was an undergraduate student of Tolkien's, and uh, you know was in touch with him throughout his life and everything. And um, there are some who are like, I couldn't understand a word that guy said, and like, <laughs> you know, it was like super weird and boring, you know. So. Like, but teaching is not his heart, you know, was, I don't think was ever really what he, he most, he did love to share things with people, but like a cl- classroom teaching did not seem to be like where his heart really was. He's, he's the heart of a poet. Like he is a creator. He's a sub creator. Yep. This you, is what he does. And you talked about, you talked about that. I think in, uh, I, I probably both session one and session two, um, talked about how, how he was, I think it was session two. You talked about how he's really kind of under underrated at writing verse, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, so I, I'm just going to move us along here a little bit. Um, I, I, I feel like you and I could just probably talk for a couple hours. On this. I think so. I think so. Uh, but um, so, so you mentioned um, one of the first things that, that sort of led you to Tolkien. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to segue here was, uh, yeah. was C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles yeah. of, of Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, there was a, there was an NPC in my campaign called Pterodon. He was a sage from the second age who kind of set all of these things in motion. He had studied the writings of Celebrimbor. Um, and he had, um, you know, in my campaign, um, because the architect is really not known, I said he was the architect of Orthanc, right? And, really? and, and we... He was an Aryan, this guy? He was a Numenorian, yes. Um, yeah. And uh, and so um, he had he had a signet ring and he had a shield that was in the shape of a diamond. And in yeah. each each of the points of the diamond had had a sort of it was like a formula right and um and and the point i'm making is his signet ring and the symbol on the shield in order to do the ritual that the characters would eventually discover was a grand lion and that was a reference to c.s lewis um, in in our campaign so um but speaking of pterodon um so so the four points of the shield were that which is escaped of the void which was the black sword Anguarel. Um, if you can, if you can remember the sister sword yeah, to sure. um, Gerth- yeah. Ale sword, which was yeah. stolen by Maegwin, right? Yeah. Um, and so when when that sword was described as having come from um, the heavens, right? I think it, it actually means like fiery star, right? That mm-hmm. or its sister sword. Um, and so I took that literally to mean no, no, it came from the void. <laughs> so so <laughs> okay. in in my campaign, I sort of tied it into that. Um, there was. There was a oh, section. So wait, hang on. So can I just ask? Does that? Please. Are you suggesting, therefore, that the because of course the the black metal, right? That Aeol makes the unique black metal that Aeol forged out of this, you know, like meteoric uh, stone, right? Uh, and made into the two swords, right? Anglakel and Anguirel. 
Um, so are you suggesting, therefore, that there is something, uh, so the darkness of the blade reflects the void? Is there something intrinsically, like, evil about it? Was, was, is, it, is, it, is it dark in its nature? Yeah, so I mean, so as we know from the Silmarillion, right, and uh, the children of her, and the, the sword itself mm-hmm. kind of has the, the maker's spirit in it, yes. right? Like, it, yes. Um, uh, yes. and, and so, you know, gladly I will drink thy blood, right, or whatever yeah. it says to yeah. turn. Um, so so there, was a, there was a little bit of that. I was trying to sort of tie into that, but, but I also, um, when, when the characters do the ritual, yes, they open up a, a sort of a gateway to Tolerisea, but they also open this portal or, or this, this small door in the void. And that was kind of, that was kind of Sauron's way of introducing, even back in the first age, a seed that would eventually lead to uh, the big bad coming back, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so yeah. And he's always trying to get Morgoth in through the back door, right? So exactly. that, that 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 checks. Yeah. That checks. Okay, awesome, awesome. <laughs> All right. Um, so so I'm kind of. Um, I think we could probably start the game now, but I, I was kind of just giving you and sort of the listeners a sort of background here. So the sure. the next point on it was that which burns inside of us all, um, and I and I mixed. I mixed several things in, in the mythology, right? Um, this concept of Ea, right? right. The, the world that is created, the, the yeah. secret fire, the living stone that is talked about in Aqualunde. And, um, and, and, so, and so where I kind of took that from was um, uh, the characters encounter a, um, an Arkenstone-like gem. Right. Okay? And my theory for this was that the seven dwarf kings awoke in different mountains and so my take on this you can see where this is going is that when they woke up a piece of that living stone that Aya, the um and you can and I, this is where probably the definition of Aya is i'm incorrect about this um but but that the arkenstone was really um just a part of that sort of creation stone that aule made for the seven um, what, how do you think how, how did how did i do there <laughs> yeah no okay so okay I agree. All right, let's see. I like the... Uh, first of all, I love the Arkenstone thing, right? Like, that's great. But it's one of the... I can understand why Tolkien never talks about the Arkenstone in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, like, let's face it, it's not pertinent, right? So he doesn't go there. It doesn't come up. It's not relevant to and, The Lord of the Rings. And, and you know, he's already done the Silmarils, so... Well, yeah, he kind of... So, okay, let's see. Let me see how briefly I can do the <laughs> Arkenstone explanation. <laughs> In The Hobbit, he's recycling Silmarillion material, right? This is what's happening because The Hobbit is not designed to be a part of the same world. It's a totally separate standalone. He's recycling stuff from all over these. He recycles stuff from Beowulf. He recycles stuff from Old Norse, uh, you know, like the trolls and the dwarves and their names and everything, right? He recycles things from bunches of different places. Uh, with, uh, again, Norse with Bjorn, right? Um, uh, so I, I, I'll, I'll, all kinds of things he's recycling, right? It's not, it's not just, they're not the same, they're not identical, but he's reusing them and adapting them into his story. And of course, he also reuses and adapts a bunch of stuff from his own stories, right? From his own mythology. Um, and, you know, one of some of the most important things among that are, you know, things like the Elven King, who looks an awful lot like Thingol of Doriath. He's not Thingol, right? No wife, no daughter. He's not Thingol, but... He looks exactly like, and you know, Mirkwood looks a lot like like, like Doriath, except when it looks exactly like Tower Nufuin, right? So, I mean, it's it, he's recycling stuff all over the place. 
The Arkenstone is one of the most obvious things that he's recycled. The Arkenstone is clearly a recycled Silmaril. He uses almost the same language to describe it, and he really gives away the game when in the, this the, one of the uh, uh, places which Christopher Tolkien publishes in, I think it's The Shaping of Middle-Earth, when he publishes, because Tolkien being Tolkien, right, uh, t- translated portions of the Silmarillion into Anglo-Saxon, like you do. <laughs> of right? course, of course, why not? <laughs> and when he translated... Uh, 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 the bits about the Silmarils. Like, the word Silmaril in Anglo-Saxon is Eorkenstana. Like, it's cle- like the Arkenstone is clearly Aww. a called Silmaril. But it's not a Silmaril, right? Like, once he makes the connection, right? Once he decides, and he doesn't do this until he's, like, partway through the Fellowship of the Ring, when he decides, okay, The Lord of the Rings, which is the sequel to The Hobbit, this is all going to be the same world, right? It's going to be like, that That stuff is going to be, in fact, like that, that stuff, meaning the Silmarillion stuff, is all going to be the ancient history of this world, right? So no more recycling, it's now connected, right? And at that point, he like drops the Arkenstone like a, <laughs> like a hot potato. Yep. Because, you know, like, now the real Silmaril, so you can't like, you know, you know, so there's no place anymore for the recycled Silmaril. So he just kind of drops it, which means within the, like, new more, much more fully imagined Middle Earth of the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien never explains the Arkenstone. So, like, what was the Arkenstone then? Like, it, it was. I mean, why do we? I mean, what? Okay, it's not a Silmaril, but what was it? You know. Um. So anyway, so I love the fact that you have like you're doing an explanation of that. The Arkenstone needs an explanation. It yeah. would. It needs a history. It's. It's so much more than just like there was this one super awesome gem that they found in Erebor. It was more beautiful than any other gem like it's clearly more than that right right um but what so hey that 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 works that works for me but let's see a few um a few clear so Ea is it coincides with the secret fire in some sense right he uh, so when Iluvatar shows them the 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 Ainur that is is them shows them the vision right he behold your minstrelsy right here's the music and he says I'm going to take and I'm going to put the secret fire at the heart of thing I'm going to call it Ea so Ea is like the world creation okay right um, uh, the world that is, right, is, is Ea. But the secret fire is at least sort of metaphorically, right, the creation power of Iluvatar. So here's the tricky thing. The question is, when thinking about the Arkenstone, I, so I love the concept of the coinciding of, you know, the idea that the Arkenstone, so when, uh, when the, the thing that I love most about your concept there is it's a concept when if applied back to the text, actually gives this like really cool new layer of meaning to the text right i mean you think about thorin saying talking about the stone of my fathers and like man okay if if that stone was like durin's stone that like durin woke up with then like yeah that's the stone of his fathers and you can and again it kind of it makes me think of all those scenes at the gates of erebor right in the hobbit and be like okay you know thorin still a little bit you know a little uh, crazy but yeah right still still on the crazy side but Come on, you know, you can kind of see it. And so, and so what you just did is, is what I did. Um, and I ended up, the, the stone that they ended up finding, of course, was not the Arkenstone. It was the Durinstone. Except I, after I named it the Durinstone, I realized that there was already a Durinstone in the Mirror Mirror. Right? right. So, so that's one of the things that I would have changed. I would have named it something different. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and well, it's a hard thing because we don't get so many other, like any other of the names of the the six other fathers of the dwarves. Uh, so we kind of have Durin and, and uh, a bunch of other folks. Um, but anyway, so the one other thing I was going to say was as far as men are, uh, not men, Aule is concerned, right? The maker of the dwarves. So what the thing that he was incapable of doing, right? 
was exactly he could do he can make things right he can form things but he can't create he can the spark of life is what he can't give so in a sense the secret fire right the secret fire is the thing that Aule doesn't have access to and that's why though he was capable of making dwarves he could make the shape of them he could even make them move you know like he could even make flesh apparently it's not like they were I think made out of like just like you know stone golems or something like that right Mm -hmm. Um, but what he couldn't do is make them is give them souls right he couldn't make them uh, autonomous only Iluvatar could do that. And so Iluvatar gives life to them. Um, so here's what the, this is. So there is this is the one thing that I would want to think more about is those stones. If those stones are associated with the life of the dwarves in some way, would that be, would the stones have to be therefore also kind of a gift from Iluvatar or sort of a reminder from Iluvatar? Or would it be something that Aule made in honor of that? So mm, like the, the, you know, the light in the stones like the Arkenstone, it wouldn't actually be the secret fire right maybe it's something sort of more commemorative right where like he gives each of the dwarves a stone uh which contains this living light right or what what looks like living it's not actually an independent soul right because again Aule can't do that right but he puts this living light inside the stone and gives them to each of the dwarf fathers as sort of a reminder right of like the spark of life Mm. that Uvatar breathes into them so it's like a kind of remember where you came from and because he wouldn't want, Aule would not want the dwarves just to be thinking of him as their father. Sure. Because he's like, he's chastised. He's, he's humbled yeah. by the experience and he's like, I, I blew it. Right. So he's not going to want to repeat that by after Luvatar gives the dwarf life being like, oh yeah. So uh, basically you guys should be all about me. Like, no, he's going to want to redirect their attention to Luvatar. So the stones could be the mechanism by, you know, a, a kind of reminder, right? That's great. No, that's very good. Uh, that's my, that's my, that's, 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 that's my suggestion for refining the, like, uh, Aule's involvement. There. I love it. I love it. If I ever turn this into fan fiction, I'm going to use that. <laughs> um, I guess it already kind of is fan fiction. <laughs> it's just a different form. Exactly. So, um, so let's see. The third point was that which sees can see across the straight road, which is pretty obvious. It's the Elendil stone. Stone, absolutely. Um, and um, and so and so if you if you start piecing all of these things together, you can kind of see. Um, okay, so we have this mechanism to bridge the gap across the straight road. We have this secret fire thing that's going to be used to power this ritual, right? We have we have this this uh, this thing that has come from the void. We're not really sure what's that doing in the ritual, which um, um, which I'll get to in a little bit. Um, and then and then the fourth point, um, and then this is the thing that the players struggled with the most guessing that right. which has the greatest gift, um, Ooh, yeah, which yeah. which is not an item at all, right? Right. Um, and so the, the greatest gift, of course, is the ability to die and to pass right. and to yes. pass on from yes. the world. So the so the 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 great altar that he built built at Orthanc, um, that ritual needed to be done by a human. Right. Right. Does, okay. Does that fit? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's especially interesting in the context of you thinking about the dude, right? I mean, that is Teradon, the dude that you know who's behind all this stuff, right? Who, especially if he's a Numenorian in the Second Age. Building a tower in Middle Earth, right? Um, uh, 
he's kind of in elvish territory, right? I mean, he's not that far from, you know, Holland is, would still, this is obviously before the fall of Khazad-dûm and before the war with Sauron uh, and, you know, the, the making of the, of the of the rings of power, right? right. So um, he would be um, not in elvish territory in the sense that he's surrounded by elves. I mean, there were other men, of course, that would have lived all around him there, but he would definitely have been kind of... Uh, you know, a human who is like deliberately walking in the footsteps, at least as far as lore is and everything is concerned of the elves. And so the idea of, though it's also a very kind of counterintuitive thing for a Numenorian to, to like be totally down with the gift of death. I'm not saying it's impossible. I think it's interesting actually. Um, and of course, given that this uh, Numenorian figure that, that, that you've invented, Terragon, has also obviously separated himself from the rest of Numenor, right? I mean, he's left Numenor and he's moved back to Middle-earth and not just hanging out in the, you know, the coastal enclaves, right? But he's way inland. I mean, he's doing his own thing, right? And so therefore, thinking that he has in some way differentiated himself from the rest of the Numenorians makes sense, right? I mean, that, that, seems, to, that seems to work. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because he wasn't totally cool. I mean, the whole the whole concept of Terdon's wager is to get closer to Valinor, right? Is to travel across the straight road. So we still have that Numenorian thing going on, right? Okay. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose. 